Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the important parts of the Urban Meyer situation, Michigan visiting Notre Dame, a high school QB at USC, and what meth heads in Kentucky like to steal from their neighbors, plus an interview with Baylor coach Matt Rule. If you enjoy our podcast, check out the rest of the growing Yahoo Sports podcast network. We have podcasts for NFL fans, MLB fans, and fans looking for an edge in fantasy. Just go to Apple Podcasts or the store of your choice, and search Yahoo Sports. All right, uh, Urban Meyer's suspension was extended a couple weeks. First three games of the Ohio State season included. Uh, that's Saturday against Oregon State, a following week at home against Rutgers, and then a trip to play TCU in Arlington, Texas. A lot has been said about this case. Uh, it concluded last week, but I want to focus on what we think is the most important part of the school's 23 page investigative report, which, judging on past content of this show, you might imagine is Zach Smith and Tom Herman's trip to a Miami strip club, but in this case actually was something else. I think we all agree. This comes from when the report is discussing how in 2015, athletic director Gene Smith brought to Urban's attention that Zach Smith had been accused of domestic violence against his wife, Courtney. This was not the first time this had happened. Zach had been arrested in 2009 for the same charge when he worked for Urban Meyer at the University of Florida. Urban knew this and relaying to his boss this fact of the previous arrest, this indeed might be a pattern of behavior, would seemingly be the first thing someone would do in this discussion. Hey, Gene, you might wanna know, oh, by the way, this could be something that's happened before. Providing that history would almost certainly change the way Gene Smith would view what was going on, how to handle the case, and whether to wait for law enforcement. It also stands to reason that Urban Meyer knew that. Yet, here's how the report handled this critical moment. Quote, we discovered no evidence that A.D. Smith was aware of the 2009 events before July 2018. So without stating it clearly, it states it clearly. Urban didn't tell in 2015, not at the first meeting with Gene Smith, not at the repeated meetings after with Gene Smith, not any of the years following. He just kept that to himself. Now, Pat, Ohio State determined that Urban Meyer did not cover anything up, but is not telling Gene Smith what you knew about Zach Smith at that moment a cover up. Of course it is. Absolutely. Withholding very relevant personnel information 
from your superior when you're trying to decide how serious another domestic violence allegation is against him is a complete cover-up. And it goes to the whole pattern of how Urban Meyer handled Zach Smith for years. That there was uh, plenty of things that never rose to a level of, hey, we need to do something here. Uh, And I think that's the biggest problem with this, is that Zach Smith got a complete free pass from a boss who I believe had an obligation to A, inform his boss, and to B, make sure that his football program, for which he was being paid millions and millions of dollars, was operating with the best people doing the right things as often as possible. You're not going to always have a perfect uh, operation. But Zach Smith was so far from perfect, he never should have kept his job that long. And directly concealing something as serious as an arrest, which did not follow by a subsequent charge, but still, an arrest for domestic violence, it to me is, is negligent at best and really hints, at, as you said, at a cover-up. Now, uh, Pete, I'm not advocating that Urban Meyer get fired for that, but he certainly could have. Um, and isn't... As this report comes out, Urban was clearly upset that he was at the press conference, did not really agree with it, did not accept the suspension, did not apologize to Courtney Smith at the time when offered the opportunity, many things. But when you read this report, which the school brushed over things like that, deemed that not a cover-up when I don't know what what it, what it else it could be, uh, you know... Uh, excused uh, numerous lies that Urban told, didn't release the report until after the press conference so Urban didn't have to face questions on this items, uh, had a staffer help him delete e- uh, delete text messages, didn't fulfill freedom of information requests. Shouldn't Urban Meyer actually be pretty pleased with the school for what they did to protect him on this? Uh, again, I'm not saying he should have been fired. That's Ohio State's decision with a valued employee, but... This could have, as bad as that press conference was, this could have been a lot worse for Urban Meyer because so much of the most important things weren't focused on at that time. I reread the report yesterday, Dan, and it's interesting because the report clearly states, you know, Urban Meyer was did not cover up. You know, like if you actually just look at the results of the actual report, they're in favor. But then there's all these vagaries as you go through it. And there's some ambiguity and some open ended questions. Did Urban Meyer delete his text messages? We don't know. It hints that he pondered it with the operations director, Brian Voltolini, but never actually explicitly says Urban Meyer deleted text messages. So there are there are multiple things like that that are brought up and, and dangled out there without any definitive conclusion, which I think the, the report almost leads to to more questions that, that weren't unanswered. But I, I agree with what Pat wrote in, in the wake of this. If this was a six and six coach at, you know, Minnesota State, some generic place. I, I don't think he probably makes it through. Yeah, and we don't know that he deleted it, but the exact thing they were pondering occurred. All the text messages over a year old were gone. So again, no, and they had a forensic lot of people, Dan, to look at that. So I would think that they would have the expertise that's available now. That if there were, if they were deleted, they would probably have some, you know, some way to figure it out with iClouds and different different things and in way and ways to go. So I don't know. I that is that is the grayest area of all of all of this lingering right now, Dan. They left a lot of gray. Um and you know, one other point that I think was really telling that got very little attention. That's just we just want to focus for people to say this is what really came out of this thing, not what the school kind of spun it as. And and that was when 
last month or this month, August, Urban Meyer meets with this investigative team and he says um, what Urban told him about the 2000 about the 2009 arrest. And he says after the arrest, and I quote, both Zach and Courtney Smith met with Urban in his office at Florida to inform him that the arrest of Zach Smith had been based on incorrect information provided to the authorities by Courtney Smith and that. In fact, Zach Smith had not hit or otherwise been violent to Mrs. Smith. Now, this would be a blockbuster of all blockbusters. Urban Meyer saying Courtney Smith walked in face to face, recanted her accusation, which is a possible crime, and would lead to all sorts of credibility questions on anything she had to say. And it's really just despicable behavior to even do such a thing. However, the investigation finds, and again, I'll quote, Courtney Smith denies ever meeting with Urban Meyer. Courtney Smith maintains that she never recanted her allegations to anyone. And this is the most interesting part. Zach Smith, who agrees with Courtney Smith on nothing, but Zach Smith also recalls that only he met with Urban Meyer and that Courtney did not. Courtney Smith did not. So the investigators wound up buying Courtney and Zach's story and basically said Urban lied on this. This isn't just like a misremembering, confusion over what got said. Urban literally made up a meeting that did not happen and made up a story of Courtney recanting directly to face, which would be an incredibly powerful moment, makes her look horrible and exonerates he and Zach. How the heck, Pat, can something like that be made up and then just brushed off in this report? That's an incredible thing to have happen. It is, absolutely. And that's, I've said all along that the report makes the whole situation look worse. Uh, you know, that when we start reading the report, it's like, wow, this was worse than I thought in terms of Meyer's culpability or dishonesty here. And I, again, I am, I think that he should have walked out of there very happy that he got a three game suspension only, as opposed to, you know, reportedly or believably sitting in there for hours and hours and hours arguing his case. If I were him and I was told I was getting a three game suspension and they laid that report in front of me, I would say, okay, uh, we'll go from here. That's obviously not what happened. Uh, you know, th to me, this is it's it's pretty remarkable because I will say, you know, there if if, if Urban Meyer could have cut this off at the pass in July when this first was brought up to him, if he had just said, you know what, I've talked to Courtney Smith and she actually recanted what she said, or Courtney Smith allegations were never believable. If that meeting had actually occurred, he could have said that, but he never did. And all of a sudden this comes out later. And yeah, I think it's really a, a major disconnect between what happened and what Urban said happened. And I don't know how you reconcile those things and walk away saying, yeah, no big deal, Urban, you're cool. Yeah, I mean, he's just inventing a meeting. I mean, just straight up inventing it. Um, and you just wonder how many times he told people of that meeting through the years and made people think, oh, Courtney Smith just lies. She wants recanted directly to Urban when it didn't happen. It was just Zach saying it. Uh, geez, I can't imagine the accused wife beater would say, no, 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 it didn't happen. Um, all right, look, football-wise, Pete, do you think um, this whole situation impacts the Buckeyes? A, they've got, uh, you know, they got tumult at the, they don't have Urban Meyer around for the first three games. The TCU game down Arlington being the big one, I think they'll get by Rutgers, certainly, with, uh, with no trouble. I could coach them. Um, but do you, you think just the, the uncertainty, the chaos, the adversity, the coaches love adversity, overcoming it, does it affect the Buckeyes this year? 
I mean, it has to impact him in some way, right, Dan? Whether it pulls them together, as some old cliche would go, or 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 it stunts them. I would think if he were suspended for the whole year, you would you would see some sort of like one of the the geniuses of Saban, Meyer, those types of guys have been around forever. Is they they do a great job of getting their team singularly focused on the next week. And that's not as hard in week one and in week two as it is in week nine and week 10. When, you know, look at what happened to Iowa last year with Ohio State. Uh, so I do think this finite period of time, they will they will miss Urban Meyer. How much tangibly they will and how much it will impact the, the scoreboard and what happens, I, I'm not I'm not so sure. Uh, all the reports that I've heard from NFL scouts, from people, uh, from people on that staff out of camp is that it's a, it's a really good football team, which should be of which should be of no surprise. And the the notion is that the juniors who are all going to go to the NFL draft, they just want to go get theirs. The sophomores are fighting for playing time. The freshmen don't know anything different um, unless they enrolled in the spring. They haven't had Urban Meyer there, so that that's been just an, an interesting window into ha- how it's been and how it's been met. I do think within that building there was some fatigue and they wanted some closure just on what was what was going to happen. Is obviously hung around for twenty something days. But I think they'll beat Oregon State by 40 like they would have if Urban was coaching. Pat, um, do you think, and I'll ask you, Pete, after this, too, you know Urban pretty well, but do you think this, Pat, do you think this makes it more likely that Urban will leave Ohio State after this year or at some premature point where, you know, otherwise you could have looked and said, geez, I think Urban Meyer will be there five to eight more years or eight to ten more years. He's got it rolling. He's going he's gonna to compete for titles every single year. But... There is clearly uh, a frosty relationship, shall we say, with the administration. Um, I think more questions will continue to be answered. While there is still, he will maintain and receive a standing ovation when he returns to Ohio Stadium. It doesn't mean there aren't people at Ohio State in the athletic department and the university that are tired of this and are questioning why they put up with all of this. Um, Does this affect Urban Meyer long-term staying at Ohio State because he can leave and go somewhere else and win also. Well, I mean, I think so. Uh, I'm not saying definitively. You know, you're asking is it more likely that this would affect his his no, you know possible yeah. departure? The answer is right. yes. Is it likely? I don't know, but it's more likely if the chance before was 5% now it's 25%. I I don't know, but I I mean, I I don't, you know, I think in general you you know coaches want good relationships with their athletic directors and with their university president and you know if if the third hand reports and a lot of speculation are accurate that this was largely a presidential driven suspension and Meyer doesn't believe he should have been suspended then yeah that ter- certainly uh impinges that relationship and could be the kind of thing where you just say you know what I don't need this. I'm going to see what my other options are. The question is, the real question, and when we get down to the nuts and bolts of college sports here, a lot of people around the nation at a lot of schools were really shaking their head over Meyer and over Ohio State's handling of this. But if Urban Meyer were to show up on the job market, how many of those same schools would say, oh, yeah, <laughs> we'll take him right now? Or would his... Uh, uh, attractiveness be limited and some people be scared of hiring him and he'd maybe have to look at the NFL. I don't know, but I would have to think if you put Urban Meyer on the job market, he's not going to stay there for long without some very attractive options. Yeah, he just uh he's rehabilitated. It's a good church man now. There a couple go. weeks of that and you're you're all set. Uh, Pete, what do you think? You know Urban well. I mean, uh, look, I don't know how he has a relationship with Gene Smith. If I'm Gene Smith, I'm angry at him. I mean, I'd be like, "Why didn't you tell me?" Like, you, "I'm suspended now." 
And if you just told me in 2015 what you knew, we might have avoided this. And I'm sure Gene Smith can talk him to something. We would have avoided this. So uh, not that that Urban Meyer need, like Urban Meyer can get Gene Smith fired, not the other way around, but it's still not a pleasant thing. What do you think Urban Meyer long term at Ohio State is? Well, I think prior to this summer, I didn't ever sense a desire from Urban Meyer to coach anywhere else. And that includes the NFL. That That's never been an ideal fit for uh, for him. Um, he liked Ohio State. He's built incredible infrastructure there. When you look at what he's brought in in terms of the strength staff and the recruiting staff, like there's a, there's a machine there, just like Saban has a machine at Alabama. And it's, it's hard now for a guy like that that's that established to move because it's literally like you're, you're, you're moving almost like a a $50 million company. That's probably a bigger number than that, but it's like a $25 million company. When you go through all of the, you know, nutrition and secretaries and in the, the whole thing, I mean, you have this huge established entity that's, you know, under the umbrella of football now. And those aren't, this isn't the old days where you roll out and go somewhere else. You got nine coaches and you go, I mean, that there's, there's more ancillary people now than there are coaches. So all, all that's a long-winded way to say, like, it, how does this impact Urban Meyer? I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure he's digested that yet. But, but what I would say is that I think there'll be a strong desire for him to distance himself from this, which could just be staying longer and, and winning. Because, um, you know, fair or not, winning does tend to cure a, a lot of things. I saw an interesting tweet the other day that there was a, a Meyer headline that his legacy was tarnished underneath a Kobe Bryant story and above a Tiger Woods, uh, right, you know, right, live right. tracker of what's going on. I mean, America does tend to forgive bad things if one continues to win. Yeah. And this is more. These are some bad things, but it's, it's he he wasn't abusing his wife. I mean, it's still a step correct, a step back. It was bad things, but uh, yeah, you can overcome anything if you win. And Urban Meyer is going to win wherever he goes. Three national titles, two other undefeated seasons: one at Utah when he didn't get a shot to play for the title, and one at Ohio State when they were on a postseason ban. Uh, he is Dan, an incredible yeah. football coach. Yes, I know this. Uh, last year, last off season. There were a bunch of people that wanted to hire Hugh Freeze in the SEC after Hugh Freeze spectacularly disgraced himself, and he's never won near as much as Urban Meyer has. Uh, they wanted to hire him as offensive coordinator at some places, and the SEC office basically stepped in and said, no, I don't think so. But if there was a market for Hugh Freeze last year, there would certainly be a market for Urban Meyer this year. Yeah, these aren't NCAA violations either. That's That was really the issue right. with, with Hugh Freeze. I mean, this is... I mean, who he was uh, calling uh, calling more than recruits on his recruiting visits was uh, was a whole separate issue. All right, Yahoo College Fantasy Football. That's right, College Fantasy Football. Maybe Hugh Freeze will play. It has arrived at the time. <laughs> 65 teams, five conferences, one fantasy. This promo reads totally different when you think of Hugh Freeze involved. <laughs> It looks, feels, and plays just like regular fantasy football, but it is 100% college. So get a league together, declare yourself eligible, and get ready to draft your true colors because Saturdays are about to become your newest fantasy tradition. Sign up now at yahoo.com slash college fantasy. All right. It's Michigan Notre Dame week, guys. Uh, great way to kick off the season. Good to see this traditional rivalry return. Uh, I do not believe either team's season is totally screwed by a loss. They will be totally screwed when the season gets tougher in October and they lose a bunch of games. But a loss would sting. 
and a victory would feel awful good for the two programs that could use it. If Michigan wins, they could easily be 6-0 and before heading into a Wisconsin-Michigan State-Penn State gauntlet in mid-October. Notre Dame, meanwhile, could start 4-0 and as they go play Stanford and Virginia Tech. A uh, lot of subplots here. Pete, who needs this more? I would think Jim Harbaugh needs it more, and, and Michigan needs it more, Dan. I, I feel like... There's this pent up need for Harbaugh at Michigan to get some sort of signature victory that saluted him in his in his time at Michigan. And they have what, at least on paper heading into the season right now, is potentially the most dysfunctional offensive staff in America. Um, it'll be interesting. Harbaugh held on to Pep Hamilton as his offensive coordinator when it really looked like he probably should have been fired. And then he brought in Jim McElwain and then he brought in Ed Warner. I believe Ron Prince is now an offensive analyst there. There's a lot of cooks in that Michigan kitchen. And then there's the chef who's obviously uh, known to be temperamental and uh, meddling. So it, it will be interesting. And then you have all that new dynamic with a with a transfer quarterback who there weren't a ton of people at Ole Miss crying when when Shea Patterson left. Uh, he's obviously a talented guy. It'll be interesting to see how he can come in, lead a team, going to Notre Dame in a big high leverage situation in his debut and mesh in with a completely different offense and new teammates and uh, in a big time setting. I uh, I think there's a lot of dynamics working against Michigan, especially offensively here. Let me back that up. Why were people at Ole Miss not crying? Obviously, uh, he was a big-time recruit. They hired his brother to get him, if, if you remember. He's a, the AAU prodigy who peaked too early. He moved high schools from Ohio to Louisiana. They, they hire the brother. And I just think there's been a, a lot of sizzle around him, and I don't know how much stake there's been in terms of actual production and in, in big wins. The talent is there, but in, internally at Ole Miss, when he left, they, they felt like he was eminently replaceable. Michigan's been playing with Hamburger Helper at quarterback. <laughs> So I think they'd take the Shea Patterson, you know, $9.99 ribeye special over the $1.99 burger they've gotten. They were Michigan last year was 116th in the nation in pass efficiency. Nine touchdown passes, 10 interceptions on the season. Atrocious, terrible passing game. You bring in a quarterback who's at least competent, and I think everything else is there. For this team, the offensive line is going to be a lot better. Good running backs returning. Uh, they did have a major injury at wide receiver this week that was disclosed that could hurt them. But defensively, I think they're going to be lights out. So I think Michigan adds a good quarterback, and they get way better right away. Uh, and I think that uh, this game actually really sets up well for Michigan against Notre Dame. But I agree with Pete with the premise that Michigan needs it more than Notre Dame does. And Jim Harbaugh needs it to kind of maintain some cachet. Not necessarily a make-or-break season, but would make next season make-or-break, I think, if Michigan doesn't perform well. Uh, I think we all agree Michigan does need it more, but I'm with Pat on this. I, I love Michigan's defense. I think they uh, they can win this game. Nick Saban has not announced his starting quarterback for Alabama's opener against Louisville, leaving the debate to Tua or Jalen. It will continue to rage all over the state of Alabama, of course. Uh, I don't buy it. I think Tua will start. Uh, I think he's just trying to make sure no one transfers uh, or has hurt feelings or anything else. USC, however, has named its starting quarterback against UNLV. His name is JT Daniels, who not only is a true freshman, but he actually should be a senior at Modern Day High School in Santa Ana. Uh, yes, a high school senior. USC is starting a high school senior. Now, maybe this means USC doesn't have any good quarterbacks 
or maybe it means JT is just awesome. But I will say this, as good as life seems for JT now, I'm a bit fearful for him. The dude started as a true freshman in high school, too. Just walked in and started in modern day as a powerhouse. Uh, he was even calling his own plays as a sophomore. I don't, I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, he then graduated high school in two and a half years, reclassified himself as a senior, enrolled early in college. Now, he had voluntarily repeated eighth grade to get ahead athletically, so it's not like he's 14 years old, but he was still only in high school for two and a half years. He took 10 classes in one semester of high school so he could pull this off and is now the immediate starter. He's like part kid genius, part Tom Brady, except Tom Brady didn't start as a freshman in high school or for a few years at Michigan. So here's where I get nervous. I know this burden. Some of us are blessed with being just nearly perfect in everything. And uh, we try to roll right through high school. Coolest, most accomplished guy. Everything just kind of goes your way. And uh, there's a lot of expectations on that. And if you don't have the proper humility, uh, it can all backfire. So JT, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned uh, if things go wrong for him at all in life. Uh, Pat, is this a reasonable fear? Dan, you're speaking from your own prior experience, obviously. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little too humble to say that, but, you know, yeah. maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I thought that's, yes, the, the path that you were laying out, the, 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 the burden of being as magnificent as you, uh, and so you can relate to, to JT's situation here. Uh, I actually, I echo your concern that this, this is a lot fast happening for him. And yeah, maybe he's been kind of, you know, groomed or fast-tracked for this for years, uh, as you laid out. But you're going to throw him in as a guy who should probably be a, a high school senior. And in week two, he's going to start at Stanford. In week three, he's going to start at Texas. That's a whole lot to ask. They've got a pretty good team around him, and hopefully, you know, they don't ask uh, JT to to win the world for him. But uh, it's a difficult situation, and something I've seen sometimes with kids who have encountered nothing but success. The first time they don't, it's like a crushing hook to the face, and they don't recover very well. This aura of invincibility they've had their whole life can kind of crumble, and it's like, oh gosh, what do I do now? Because nothing's ever gone wrong before. How do you handle when it goes wrong? Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, it's fascinating to watch the, the reviews on his performance out there in August have been very strong. Uh, we'll see if Clay Helton can kind of shepherd him and bring him along. But as I said, the schedule's going to demand that he's ready right away. Pete, uh, what do you think? How are you as a high school senior? Who was a high school senior? I was just a ball of awkward. Um, I met JT Daniels as a high school junior going into his senior year at the QB Collective Camp. And he may have even been more impressive than you in high school, Dan, if you can imagine that. Uh, I know there's a statue of you at BC High uh, right in my yeah. neighborhood here. But uh, <laughs> yep. no, JT Daniels, like I spent about 15, 20 minutes with him uh, last summer at a camp and I walked away like, wow. And my first thought was that kid's definitely going to Stanford. He knew what he wanted to major in college. He had really high end academic goals. Uh, he ended up staying home and, and going to USC. But I think Dan touched on it. It's almost more impressive to start as a freshman at Matter Day in uh, Southern California, the powerhouse there that's produced Matt Liner, Colt Brennan, Matt Barkley, and on and on. And we could go on and on in basketball, too, there. It, that, to me, is almost like more surprising than uh, than being the starting quarterback at USC. Um, I think, uh, you know, with T. Martin as the OC there and Brian Ellis, the quarterback coach, they'll they'll put a nice cocoon around him. And it does help when everyone's a five-star that you're going to – it's blocking for you, you're throwing to, et cetera. 
All right. We'll see how the UNLV running Rebels do against them this Saturday. Certainly one to look forward to. All right. Staying out west, Washington. uh, Well, I guess it's sort of out west. Washington is traveling to Atlanta to meet up with Auburn. It is the only matchup of top 10 teams uh, to kick off the season. Obviously, a huge game. Love seeing the interregional rivalries. Wish it was home and home. But that said, we got it going. Washington has a ton of a ton at stake here, and not just for them. Uh, the Pac-12 is uh, not presenting itself in the preseason as a team with a, with a, as a conference with lots of national title contenders. Washington may be the only one. Uh, Chris Peterson has long been a master at openers, uh, and he, when he has a lot of time to prepare, uh, a loss here would be devastating to the Huskies' playoff chances, though, and maybe the Pac-12 as a whole. Uh, and it could really bolster what would be an end-of-the-year argument on why the SEC deserves two teams if Auburn can beat the eventual Pac-12 champ. Uh, how big is this one, Pete? Well, I think it's huge. I mean, the hamburger helper analogy uh, fits the Pac-12, especially after their bowl performance last year when they won the vaunted Heart of Dallas Bowl and none others. Uh, I really think for the credibility of the league, th- there's another layer here too, Dan. Like The Pac-12's dip comes at a time when financially they're simply not keeping up. Their Pac-12 network has generally been a financial failure for that league. And the the Big Ten and the SEC have clearly separated themselves from it. Now, again, the Pac-12 is always going to have good programs and, you know, it's it's hard to screw up USC. Uh, But right now, I think the middle and the bottom of that league are as bad as it's been in my uh, in my lifetime covering college sports. We look at Oregon State's going to be terrible. I'm not exactly bullish on Arizona State, as you can imagine. UCLA should be fine under Chip Kelly, but I don't feel like that's going to be look very good this year, especially with the suspensions that they announced to uh, to open the season. So credibility wise for the Pac-12, both in the macro and the micro, the Auburn game's huge. Pat? Yeah, with uh, Pete 100 percent there that after going one and eight in bowl games last year, after missing the college football playoff, after getting nothing done in non-conference play in September, Uh, The Pac-12's credibility is very, very low coming into this season. And so they need to start off with something to change that narrative and to convince people that they do still play big boy football out there and the the, the ultimate opportunity is right here. I do think Washington's the best team in the Pac-12 this season. I think they've got a really good team there. uh, And I think Chris Peterson's excellent in these sort of situations. You give him a big season opener, throw it on a neutral field. When he was at Boise, he always had his team ready for those. So I expect him to be ready for the game. Uh, if they're not and they get housed, then yeah, this is a lookout. It could be the beginning of another long season for the Pac-12. Five new coaches in the Pac-12 this year. All right, Yahoo College Fantasy Football has arrived. Uh, 65 teams, five conferences, one fantasy. It looks, feels, and plays just like regular fantasy football, but with 100% college. Sign up now at yahoo.com slash college fantasy. All right, one more bit before we get to our interview. Uh, Miami is playing LSU this weekend. West Virginia is playing Tennessee. Neither of these games is, you know, overwhelmingly the big game of the weekend. Uh, not sure how great either all any of these teams will be, although you got some contenders. But we are talking world-class drinking fan bases among these four. Miami, LSU, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Uh Pat, let's start with you. At which game will more alcohol be consumed? Miami LSU or the Appalachian Special West Virginia? <laughs> Man, it's that's a battle of, uh, of heavyweights. No doubt about it. The bars had better be ready. I'm going, though, with West Virginia, Tennessee. LSU is the number one seed of the four here. 
but I think Miami's a distant number four seed, smaller fan base. West Virginia fans, they're just on, you know, they're on the blackout train. They're going to go until they're like just cross-eyed. <laughs> Tennessee fans won't be very far behind. So I think the combination there, well, we've seen LSU almost drink Syracuse dry, try really hard to drink Dallas dry before when they've played there. Tennessee and West Virginia could annihilate Charlotte. Pete, what do you think? Who, who wins this? It's really hard to one-up that, uh, that that drinking analysis that I mean, Pat just gave. Really that was good. really in his sweet really spot. Good. There were some, some impressive statistics rattled off. I will say this. Don't underestimate the despair of some of these fan bases, all right? You have LSU, <laughs> which lost to Troy last year, which is potentially facing another long season under Ed Orgeron. They have a very unproven offensive coordinator and Steve Emsinger. That, the, the, this whole LSU season percolates with potential disaster and no one knows that better than LSU fans who have watched it unfold and then I mean Tennessee went 0-8 in the SEC last year so that, that's a lot of good reason but there also could be West Virginia fans concerned that they're overhyped this year going in and can you imagine what would unfold if they lost and I, I agree Miami's like bandwagon you I don't even count you know yeah, but, you know, the bottle service scene at South Beach. I mean, South Beach can <laughs> hand out some hangovers, man. They Ever since Nevin Shapiro left hangovers. that scene, it's gone cold. It's this, Yeah, well, maybe if Nevin was still around, uh, we'll see. He'll probably be listening, <laughs> watching the game at his uh, federal penitentiary in uh, Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama, where he's currently located. Uh, all right. This week's interview has Pete sitting down with Baylor coach Matt Rule, who, bless him, Built up Temple to become one of the hottest coaches in the country and decided to take the job in scandal played Waco anyway. First season, 1-11. He actually did a pretty good job. Heck of a coach. Tough situation there. Pete finds out how the Bears will turn the corner this year. Here we go. Thamel of Yahoo Sports here with Baylor head football coach Matt Rule. Matt, I mean, I, I'll, I'll skip how honored you are to be on here and just you know cut right to the questions about the Baylor Bear season. I think the first thing I want to ask you about Matt is the arc of what you have done so far at Baylor, which is really not an arc because arc tends to go up. <laughs> is is similar to to the coaching arc you had at Temple when when you when you took over there, and certainly no one delights in having first seasons where things appear to bottom out. I'm just wondering what you gleaned from your two and ten season at Temple that you've taken with you to endure your one and eleven opener at Baylor, and then obviously rally things. You you, you turned it around at Temple and won an American uh, Conference title. You know, I think the thing that um, I kept saying to myself this year was I would remind, and, and my whole staff's with me. We would always remind ourselves that you know when we were winning ten games at Temple, we would always say we did our best job in the two and ten year, and in that two and ten year, you know we. We got rid of all the things in the program, you know, that we thought were causing us to lose. We, we taught lessons, and they were hard lessons, but, you know, we experienced them. And, and it was sort of a trial by fire. And, and I really found out who I was as a coach, and our players found out who we were as players, and we, we developed a brand and, and, and then grew from there. And so, you know, as we went through it this year, I just reminded our guys, hey, we have to do our best job coaching. Like, you know, when you lose to Liberty and you lose to UTSA right off the bat, uh, go to Duke and lose, then you're kind of in the fight of your life. And what you can complain or you can just coach. And so we try to do a good job of not panicking, not changing, because we'd been there before, and just saying, hey, let's coach, let's teach, 
And I think that really helped our team. And, and uh, you know, those kids that were with me on that 2-10 and 10 team at, at Temple and then won a championship, you know, we're, we're close to this day. And so I want to have that same closeness with the guys at this program. And, and, and uh, I think we got made a major step as we did that. Most of your media day questions last year and most of the questions from the moment you got hired at Baylor uh, right on through kickoff last year regarded the, the culture there off the field and the issues there off the field. I'm going to ask you a little bit today, Matt, about changing the on-the-field culture. I mean, Baylor on the field between the, between the lines was the extreme hyper-tempo. They were the epitome of this, this new brand of football that's taken over college football in the last generation. So what was that football culture change like, Matt, coming here and trying to instill what you did but marry it with the talent that you inherited? You know, uh, from an X's and O's perspective, I thought, you know, it wasn't a major shift for the coaches. I mean, we, we love studying all different kinds of footballs. I think for the players, it was probably the hardest. And it was not even just the, you know, what we were doing schematically. It was the way we wanted to practice. Um, you know, we wanted to go against each other. We were in full pads more. And, and, and I would tell them all the time, it doesn't mean one way is better than the other. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat. But at the end of the day, this is the way I know. And I, I try to sell it to the players, and I always will. Uh, the reason why we're physical, the reason why we practice the way we do is it'll develop you and make you a much better player. You know, I, I think there were times, obviously, where they were frustrated, where they questioned it. But at the end of the day, I think they also saw the kids at Temple having a lot of success in the NFL. Uh, they recognized that, you know what, I'm getting better as a player. And um, I think they, they bought into it slowly, but eventually pretty fully. Schematically, what should we expect Baylor to look like against Abilene Christian? You know, I think we'll still be pretty much a spread team. Um, you know, we always want to find a way to run the football. I think one of the things about, you know, the previous Baylor offense, when you go back and watch this, no, they, I mean, they ran the football. I mean, they were going to pound the ball. And so, you know, we want to we want to we want to find a way to run the football and pound the ball and be physical. Uh, but at the same time, we also want to play great defense. And so we're not going to be a hyper tempo team. But because of our skill, because of our athletes, man, we will, we will put receivers out there and we won't look the way we looked at Temple and we shouldn't because it's my job as the head coach to make sure that, hey, you know what, let's be smart enough to get the best players on the field. Your, uh, your barometer you sort of jokingly used last year for where the program was was you would go to your local bar in Cape May, New Jersey when you're on a vacation. You and your wife, Julie, would bike there, obviously. And uh, when you'd arrive, if Baylor was scrolling on the bottom line, it was not a good day. And then the days Baylor was not on the bottom line, it was it was a good day. And I think your local bartender kept track of that. I just want to contrast that vacation last summer when, you know, inheriting all the off-field issues at Baylor to, to this summer when things have been much quieter. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's come full circle. Um, and, and all that, you know, I think the one thing I've had to learn is all of that's external. You know, all those things, you know, things will come out in the media and, you know, things will be, be, be released. And I, I just can't let those things affect me. You know, my job is to make sure that, you know, within our building, the, the young people that are in our program are getting developed. They're becoming the men that they're supposed to be. They're becoming the students that they're supposed to be. They're becoming the football players. And so I can't really worry anymore about what other people are saying. I mean, does it, does it affect recruiting here and there? Yeah, but the right people are going to come to Baylor for the right reasons. And so I've learned to just become very sort of stoic about it and just say, hey, I'm going to control what I can control. And it's, I think it's made me a better coach. And, uh, you know, I sit here today, I think I'm a better coach than I was this time last year. And, and um, uh, you know, I'm proud of our players. I think when you get in there and you meet our players and you're in our building, you say, you know what, there, there's a bunch of good kids here doing things the right way. Do we have mistakes? Sometimes absolutely. Do we have issues? Just like everyone else. But we've taken a major step forward as a program. I spent some time in Waco, your first signing day there, when you were outselling what you're going to bring to to Baylor football. And you were thrilled with the response of Texas high school football coaches, with the response of families, how 
easy it was to get to Baylor, you know, how familiar they were with the success that had been there on the field. What is the response been recruiting wise for Baylor and has it been easy to recruit there? You know, I, it has been. I mean, I think I think deep down inside, you know, the, the real issue is in the state of Texas, parents know what a Baylor education is going to do for their kids. You know, that's sixty three thousand dollar a year private school education. You know, our kids are doing really well in school. You know, they, they they're studying over twenty five different majors. They can go in the business school if they want. They understand the impact it's going to have on their life. They can stay close to home. You know, they don't have to take a plane to go watch their kids play. They can stay within two or three hours from home. You know, they're going to get coached by a bunch of guys that have been in the NFL and hopefully can develop them to be pro players. And it's a beautiful campus. And, and, and you hope that, you know what, that we can get back to the level of competitiveness that we had a couple of years ago. And so, you know, are there questions? Are there tough conversations? Yeah, there are. But at the, at the same time, there's also a benefit to that in that, you know, we're not having these fake conversations about the latest rap song or the newest, uh, you know, whatever. We're talking about real issues. And, and I think when we leave, parents and families and coaches say, you know what, the, the guys at Baylor, they're real. They're about the right things. Opportunity on the field exists, certainly coming off a 1-11 season. When I look at your first four games, Abilene Christian at home, at UTSA, Duke and Kansas both at home, I think it's fair to say all those are winnable games. Uh, I'm sure you expect to win all 12 of your games on your schedule, but I'm just wondering, with your revamped roster and with experience on both lines, some some interesting talent at quarterback, whoever you do decide to start, with four manageable games early, what kind of opportunity that presents for a team that probably really needs to learn how to win? Yeah, you know, I mean, these kids are resilient, you know, but we've won two of the last 19 games. And so I think they, they, they know that they're going to be successful, but they just have to taste a little bit of success. You know, the one thing I will say is one of the th- good things that a, a bad season does for you is it makes you love to win again. And so when you get back there, it's sometimes you get used to it. You get complacent. Well, when you get back to winning after losing, you love it so much, you'll do anything to do it. And so, um, those games early on, not any one of them, but like that first game is the most important game in the world because we have to, we didn't win a game at home last year. We have to win a game in front of our fans. And so, um, you know, I used to say at Temple and I say it here and I don't know if the kids believe me, but I think they do now. I, I tell them we can, we can beat any team on our schedule, but we can also lose to any team on our schedule. You know, we lost to Liberty, we lost to UTSA, but we took Oklahoma 48 45. And so, once you realize that, hey, we can win any game and we can lose any game, the games become that much more important. There's an interesting cultural nuance you mentioned to me at some point last season when I was checking in on you as, as you went through 1-11. and 11. You said that the fans at home, you just mentioned not winning a game at home, were unbelievable and unbelievably classy and supportive. You mentioned a gift basket showing up at your door after one of the particularly difficult losses. What was the reaction like as this program went through last season? There was still sort of a pall over the crowd early on. You know, they've dealt with a lot, and then to lose those first two games was tough. You know, we went out and played at Oklahoma, and I thought for the first time that people had fun. And uh, it was Oklahoma, it was West Virginia, it was Iowa State. Three times we lost the game, close games, walked off the field to a standing ovation. And, um, you know, I'm not a moral victory guy. But, but I think what it did was, and it's one of the reasons why we had such a good recruiting class, because those kids were there. It told our players that, you know what, we know what you've been through. We know what you guys are doing for us. Uh, we value, we value you not just for what the, you know, not just for the wins. We value your effort. We value you coming out and representing us the right way. And it really told me a lot about, you know, I took the job sight unseen and it was a, you know, tough year. And I said to myself, these are good people and they deserve a program they can be proud of. And I think it showed our players, you know what, hey, this is about more than just football. Now, 
Now it's time to go win for real now, though. I mean, no more moral victories. But I think in year one, that was really a unique thing that you don't see in college football. What was in the gift basket? I don't even know that I can remember. I think it was like muffins and, uh, uh, it was nice. It was, uh, we have some great neighbors and, um, uh, people, I think, the, you know, I'll just say it again. The people in the community were just amazing to my family and I. So my favorite story from a journalistic sense of last year was your kicker towards ACL. That wasn't my favorite part. You literally had to go to the student body and find a kid to kick off. I believe his name is Jay Sedwick. He was kicking against Oklahoma, correct, after coming from the student section. Walk me through that. And 10 years from now, when you look back at that season, I imagine that's one of the first stories you're going to tell. Yeah, I mean, here's a kid that, you know, the first two games, he's, he's in the crowd. He's in the stands uh, cheering. We, 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 we lose to Kansas State. We have tryouts. And literally, um, literally, he's, he, he's, he's kicking off in practice. And I still haven't told him if he's on the team or not. And he kicks off that Saturday. And so, you know, in a crazy year like that, those, those are the stories that, you know, keep you sane and keep you going through it. And, you know, this spring we were so depleted at receiver. I said, I need someone to play receiver. And Jay said, I'll do it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cool now is he walks around, he's confident, he's strong, and I think he'll end up having a pretty good career. What year is he? He'll, he'll be a sophomore. He literally was a, a true freshman that didn't even go to preseason camp that's out there at, at Oklahoma State kicking the ball off. How about that? When we look at your returning talent this year or your talent you have this year, obviously Jalen Hurd, the, the transfer from Tennessee, is is your standout receiver. And you really have a good group of experienced receivers. But Jalen seems to be the guy that pops and has some buzz. What has stood out to you from, from seeing him in person? Well, I mean, he's a freak athlete. Uh, and he's really, really competitive. Uh, I think the biggest thing to me is his work ethic. You know, to you know, to make the move from running back to receiver, you're basically trying to learn a, a pretty complex skill set that most people take 10 to 12 years through high school football and college football to learn, and he's learning it in, in 12 months. And um, to do that, you know, you have to have great skill and great ability, but you also have to put a lot of time in. And I mean, the thing about Jalen is he truly, truly works at his craft and works at a high level all the time. I'm sure nobody's asked you about your quarterback situation. I'm just curious, coming in, Charlie, obviously, Brewer was an accurate guy for you who really showed some moxie. I believe, if memory serves me right, he was the most accurate passer in, like, the history of Texas high school football. He obviously has some experience. You have a transfer from NC State. You have a Ballyhood freshman from Arkansas. Walk me through that position group. I just think generally to start, Matt, you have to feel great about that room right now. It's not the numbers maybe you normally would want of four or five scholarship players, but there's three guys who I think can go out and lead you to wins. And, uh, you know, Jalen's, you know, done some things at NC State, beat Notre Dame, you know, beat uh, Florida State. Um, Charlie obviously came in and played for us last year, and Gary's, you know, he's young, but he's going to be really good. And so if we play today, Charlie would go out and do it. You know, I I love the way he plays. The team follows him. But we can really let Charlie go. We can really let let Charlie go and go play because we know we have a good, you know, a good group behind him if he does get dinged up a little bit. The identity on your defense from, from looking at the talent you have back will probably be on your line. Do you feel a lot better about where that group is setting a tone for you guys defensively at Temple? That was obviously where you guys made your hay, Matt. Yeah, you know, I, I believe you went up front, you went in the trenches, you know, you got to stop the run, you got to get to the other team's quarterback. And so, you know, a bunch of kids that were playing as, you know, sophomores two years ago, now they're out there as juniors and seniors, and they're bigger, they're stronger. And, and I think that we have a lot of bodies, we have a lot of depth, and we have a lot of good players on the D-line. After going 1-11 last year, the Indianapolis Colts knocked on your door and you went and spoke to them. I'm curious, looking back on that, what you gleaned from for, from that experience. I know you spent some time in the NFL with the Giants under under Coach Coughlin. What was it about that experience that intrigued you? You know, I think one of the things is when you when you interview for a job or talk about a job, whatever word you want to talk about, it forces you to really sit there and say, what do I really believe? And when it's a job at the next level, you know, you, you don't know how everything's going to translate. 
but it, it makes you sit back and almost reflect and say, okay, this is who I am. This is what I believe in. And when you go back to work and you go back to Baylor, it almost like cleanses your mind. You say, okay, this, these are the things I think are important. And so, you know, I, I coached in the NFL for a small time. It's a great experience. Um, and, it, you know, I'm one of those people like, you know, I really want to see this thing through. I came here for a reason. And so it was a cool opportunity. And, you know, those things happen and you talk to people. But in my heart, I, I just really felt like, you know what, I, I, I want to be a part of getting Baylor, you know, back to where it's supposed to be on and off the field. One of the media day storylines around the country is gambling being legalized. And I'm curious on a micro level in your program, what you in the university and administration are doing to address that? Because obviously the, the temptations that come with gambling and the, you know, some of the difficulties that may come with it are going to be more prevalent on every campus, not just not just Baylor. I'm curious how you guys have viewed that from a macro sense and how you'll address that at Baylor. You know, so we're in a little di- different, more unique situation just because in Texas, you know, I don't think they're going to legalize it there. Um, but I think that's been an issue we've had to talk about for years and years and years, whether it's DraftKings or, you know, some of the new things like FanDuel that came up the last couple of years, making sure guys understand, you know, online gambling, you could lose a year of your eligibility and really staying on top of it. And so we've been vigilant about it. You know, how will that change? Uh, you know, I'm not sure what will happen with the injury reports and things like that. But, you know, we are always on top of everybody talking about giving away information. And so it'll, 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 it'll continue to be there. I just, I'm of the opinion that it's been there for a while, you know, and while it wasn't legal, gambling was, is pretty prevalent. And so, you know, we'll have to just continue to manage it the way we have. Last question is uh, your offensive, uh, your right guard, uh, Blake Blackmar is a, is a, burgeoning barbecue chef uh you, you guys had an event where he cooked for your team people people love barbecue in texas i know uh tell me a little bit about blake well he's uh he, he's truly is a renaissance man and he he is an, a, a a barbecue aficionado travels all over texas and tries different places literally came over to my house we have one of those big green eggs and and, and cooked for me but we had a you know senior retreat we wanted to get the guys away at the seniors and spend a day having fun and and uh, we were trying to figure out who to cater it, and, and I was like, "Why would we cater it when we have the best barbecue chef around?" So, so uh, Blackmar came in and, and did a little chicken and sausage to get us started, and then some steaks, a tomahawk at night. He really has a gift, and if he blocks half as well as he cooks, we're going to win a lot of games. <laughs> so, what is the best barbecue in Waco for all the Big Twelve fans who may be rolling through uh, this season or beyond? So, if I'm in the mood for ribs, I go to Jasper's, which is my spot. I love it there. And if I'm in the mood for brisket or some, you know, different else, I'll go to Guest Family Barbecue, which is over by Magnolia. Both are great places, and uh, both have 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 uh, fed me quite well since I've gotten. Is it like the rib place in House of Cards? J- Jasper's always makes me feel like that. And the, you walk in there, great people make you feel like family. It's uh, it's truly a, it's truly a, a Waco gem. Stuff there. Uh, breaking news here, though. Some guy in Kentucky had a bunch of his stuff stolen by a meth head relative or neighbor or maybe both. Uh, there are apparently many suspects. This took place in, I kid you not, Turkey Creek, Kentucky. And uh, we want to keep you informed of everything that's going on, especially in Turkey Creek. Uh, we actually... <laughs> have audio of a local news report. I don't know if Pat was watching the, like, you know, (laughs) Channel 2 works for you news and heard this. Not really sure where Pat got it, but, uh, oh, check this treat out. 
Officials say meth is on the rise, and as a result, so is crime. Must have been a bad batch around here because Floyd County's went crazy in the last four days. Neighbors notified Mason Tackett that his cousin, Philip Matthew Hagens, was seen carrying items from his house. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, do you know him? Ba- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I live in suburban Turkey Creek. That is, they say, out, uh, that is out in the state, Floyd County. Out, out state. That's out there. Out state. Uh, I like that uh, that he initially, like a, a bad batch can take out an entire county. <laughs> Good Lord. Lord. County gone crazy the last four days. <laughs> Whole county. All right, let's get to the actual crime uh, where this really gets interesting. This is where we detail what actually was stolen from uh, that guy who apparently is not involved in the batch uh, by his cousin or whatever that was. I'm guessing everyone in Turkey Creek is cousins in some way. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Who steals a cheese grater? He's got the works, Lysol. He stole an empty bottle of spray. What got me the most was my soap. He stole my soap. Who steals soap? Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, the- the guy stole an empty bottle of Lysol? <laughs> yeah. What is an empty bottle of Lysol worth? Uh, this, this crime, can you imagine? Okay, you're in the big house now. You're in, you're in some prison in Kentucky, the Turkey Creek Jail. What are you in for, buddy? No. Stole an empty bottle of Lysol. I mean, is that a crime or are you just taking out the garbage? That'd be my defense. All right, so, so apparently you st- this guy stole a cheese grater, some soap, and an empty bottle of Lysol. Pat, since you <laughs> it still made the news, it was enough of, a, enough of a story to make the news. Pat, since you live in Kentucky and may or may not have a substance abuse problem, what <laughs> is the most obscure household item you would steal from a neighbor in order to fund said alleged habit? <laughs> well, I, I'm far too principled to steal a man's cheese grater. That's that's hitting them too low, as far as I'm concerned. However, I am not above stealing a bottle opener. You want to know why, Dan Wetzel? Because okay. I drink beer that doesn't come with twist-off caps. I drink good beer that requires a bottle opener to use, or the side of your hand if you're really dexterous and tricky, and I can do that as need be. But I'm telling you, watch your bottle openers. If you turn your back, I may just take one. Thank you very much. That was like Pat was running for Senate, the way he delivered that. There was like pride <laughs> was really in it. Really proud. Like, <laughs> Dear people of Floyd County, I am your principal. <laughs> they should throw you out of Kentucky just for refusing to drink any <laughs> bottled beer that could possibly be twisted off. That's the standard now. That's the standard. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Keep the your bush light twist Kentucky. offs to yourself. I mean, very few Bush Light bottles out there. They do exist, but it's pretty much 30-pack cans. So we don't even need a bottle opener. 30 packs. Uh, Pete, what what would you steal if you happen to need some meth? (laughs) I would think the most random thing I would potentially steal from a house, and again, that takes a lot of, like, iterations of disbelief to get there. I would steal someone's grill cover, because mine always blows away, and I buy one, like, every six weeks. Like, I come back from a trip, and my grill cover's like... 
blown down the street. So I think that would be the best thing I could go. I don't really know uh, what could potentially fund my alleged substance abuse problem, but I think that would I would take that out of like just general annoyance and necessity. I got you. I got you. Uh, I I would answer this, but I'm not going to self-incriminate. I mean, unless I have the <laughs> Fifth Amendment on my side here, I'm just not going to mention. Come on, we 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 will be back next week though. Uh, subscribe and leave us a positive review. If you have something negative to say, don't write it. Five stars only. All right, you jerks. Talk to you next week.